0: Man, I gotta be honest with you, I was terrified for my professional life. The NYPD is putting out letters, very nasty letters, right? Suggesting that we were sympathetic to terrorism, right? And this is, again, the world's largest and most powerful police department. So large and powerful that Mayor Bloomberg said that it could be his own personal army.
1: The NYPD is world-renowned as an agency that not only stops street crime, but has focused on the potential threat of terrorism uh, from around the world. In the end, the NYPD's first job is prevention, and I think they've done a very good job at that. We practice and practice what you would do if, God forbid, something did happen, uh, but the first job is to make sure, to the extent humanly possible, that it it does not happen. Welcome to season two of M-Train. I'm Ahmad Ali In the next six episodes, we look at the way surveillance has impacted Muslims and the fight for abolition. In our very first episode, we talked to Asad Dandia, one of the plaintiffs in the class action lawsuit that successfully sued the New York City Police Department for its prejudicial surveillance of Muslim communities. Hey, everyone. I'm Amad al-Yakbar, and this is M-Train. I'm joined today by Asad Dandia. Welcome to the show, Asad. Thank you so much for having me, Ahmed. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So we've been conducting these interviews about surveillance, mostly with the Muslim community. And we're getting a lot of sort of big picture views of the debilitating, transformative effects that surveillance has had on various communities. But we wanted to get a sort of first-person look at how informants, in particular, Are used in the Muslim community. I've spoken to you in the past for other pieces but this is the first time we're talking about this story in your in your life and it's a challenging thing but could you just kind of summarize for people who are unfamiliar with
0: your case and your story? So this was uh, once upon a time about a decade ago uh, which feels like eons ago now at this point um, when I was an 18 or 19-year-old community college student, I co-founded a charity whose essential goal or purpose was to do mutual aid. All right, Samia, Malaika, Assalamu
1: So what are you guys doing over here? We are here with the food, and we're going to make the
0: meals in the containers,
1: and we're handing them out. All right, and what are we doing? Who are we giving it to?
0: We're feeding the homeless here in New York City.
1: New York City. Guys, and look at look at the quality of food. These are the kind of food that you would want to eat, right? Mm. And this is what we're giving.
2: MashaAllah.
0: And what we really wanted to do was to serve our community in a way that we felt that uh, it was not being served. We were, Many of us were from working class backgrounds. A good number of us were undocumented. We weren't really... Uh, receiving the type of attention and help that we needed from government services. And so we decided, you know what, why don't we pull together some of the money and resources that we have and just buy groceries for families whom we know need help. Very simple, very doable, very scalable for, you know, a bunch of 18-year-olds. Our organization exponentially grew after we started advertising the work on Facebook and on social media. And young Muslim volunteers throughout the city would message me, asking to get involved, among them being a young man in Jackson Heights of South Asian Muslim background who messages me in March of 2012 asking me how, if and how he can get involved with the work that we were doing. And I told him the best way is to just show up. Come to the local mosque or the masjid, meet, meet our friends, chip in whatever money you can, and we'll go out and buy groceries together and start delivering them to the families whom we were serving. And that's exactly what he did. It was not an atypical request, and he started showing up to basically all of our events. About a month later, in April of 2012, someone from my community who happened to be a police officer asked to see me privately, and he basically told me that I'm being watched and that he can only do so much from the inside. Of course, I was petrified. About a week later, I heard from another source, again, that you know there was a file with our photos and our names in the police precinct, and that we had been identified by the NYPD as a what's known as a code orange threat. And mind you, this was 2012, so this was around the same time as Occupy Wall Street and the Arab Spring. We were also uh, becoming more politically conscious of the world around us, of you know, economic inequalities and various injustices, whether domestic or abroad. One day I'm coming back home from a delivery, uh, a food delivery in October, and someone texts me while I'm in the car with my friend who's driving. Someone texts me to check Facebook. I open up Facebook and, I, and, I, and the first thing I see is a confession from the young man who had messaged me in March of 2012, March of that year, asking to get involved. And the first two lines, that confession, basically him saying, I was an informant sent by the NYPD to investigate terrorism. But the whole community was shaken. Shockwaves were sent because the media had picked it up. The Associated Press put a report out on it. They are students of medicine and business, but tonight they're taking a role-playing seminar on how to spot an undercover police officer or informant. The reason? This Muslim student group at Brooklyn College was recently infiltrated by an undercover NYPD officer. NYPD files obtained by the Associated Press show police were concerned. The group hosted speakers on Salafism, a strain of fundamentalist Islam, and went on paintball getaways.
2: As Americans, the Muslim community
0: feels betrayed because of this illegal and unconstitutional surveillance that's being conducted, and we're here to put a human face on it. I'm an attorney, and, and I'm an American, and everyone here behind me is an American, and we're proud of our country. And we do not question the right of any law enforcement agency to conduct legal and valid Leads and to follow legal and valid searches, but to conduct blanket surveillance based on ethnicity and religion is unconstitutional and it's un American. I got contacted by all the major community leaders, and at some point, CUNY Clear, the uh, pro bono legal clinic based out of CUNY Law School, got in touch with me. And they wanted to meet me in their offices in Long Island City. So at the end, They were like, okay, look, we at CUNY Clear have been working on a lawsuit to challenge the NYPD's unconstitutional surveillance of Muslim communities. And we're currently in in the stage of collecting information from impacted individuals. So we're speaking to multiple potential plaintiffs. And we believe that your case presents a compelling story. And we'd like you to be a key plaintiff in the lawsuit. I'll be honest with you, man. I thought I was being recruited to the Avengers. It was great. <laughs> uh, you know, they're reaching out to all of these like Muslim superstars who have been attacked by the police or surveilled by the police, and we're gonna we're gonna finally fight back. And we filed in June of 2013, and that lawsuit lasted for about three, three some years. We reached a settlement at the end of 2016, and it was signed off in the first month of 2017, a couple of days before Trump was inaugurated.
1: And I saw, I saw that conversation happening that it didn't seem possible, right, to win a case of m- Muslims against the government, against policing in that way. So it did have that. It kind of started a conversation in that way. I think also like the conversation around policing and surveillance have changed. So I'm excited to get into that with more detail with you f- later on in the interview. But I also just want to like hear a little bit more about working in your community. Clearly, there was a commitment to your community that caused you to do this work that kind of got you caught up with the NYPD. It got made them put their eyes on you unwillingly. Talk to me a little bit about your community in Brooklyn. Where do you come from and and what kind of values did you pick up from growing up there?
0: My community is one of many, I want to say, working class enclaves in New York City, particularly in in Brooklyn, the Bronx, and Queens. It's a Pakistani-American community, but you know, like, like many New York communities, it's not just Pakistanis, right? We, have, we had Yemenis, we had a major Central Asian contingent, so Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Albanian, Turkish, Mexican, right? Ecuadorian, so on and so forth. To give you, to give you an idea of just how tight-knit the community was, on my block, right, or within, let's say, a five-block radius of where I live, I had my supermarket, my laundromat, my mosque, my school, my pharmacy, at least a dozen different restaurants to choose from. Gas station, tire shop, a beach, literally everything within a 5 to 10 block radius. It, that was heaven for you? Like, that, was that, was when that, you? When you describe it as heaven, I'm like, to me, this is just what a, every neighborhood should be. It's like, right. just an ordinary neighborhood. Right. But then when I started talking to folks outside of New York City or people who moved to New York City and telling them that I can hear the call to prayer from my living room every Friday, and I can hear the Friday, like the sermon, from my home. You know, sometimes I, you know, when I'm late and I'm still in the shower, I can hear the imam.
1: Looking at several of these cases in my career as a journalist, I think that's always what struck out about your case for me. is yeah. you. It must have been so formative for you to have those experiences at such a young age. But what's so distinct about that experience is the betrayal that happened there. So let's let's go back to that first um, contact with the informant. Mm-hmm. His name was Shamir Rahman. Shamir Rahman. Yes. Shamir Rahman. Shamir Rahman, okay. yes. Okay, can you talk about his first contact? What was that co- first conversation like?
0: So the first conversation, if by if by what you mean online, it was just a message, right? Hey, salams. how are you? You know, I love the work that you're doing. Is it? How, how do I get involved? My name is Shamir. I'm based in Jackson Heights. It was exciting, to be honest, the first time. I, I used to get excited to make new friends from outside of the neighborhood. So the guy was with us from March to October. Right? I want to say from like March up until the summer, things were going well. And then I want to say from the summer to the fall is when like, you know, things started going going downward and, you know, people started suspecting him and others of being informants and so on.
1: Oh, so they were suspecting before he made that Facebook
0: announcement. Yes, people started suspecting based on conversations that we had in the fall. But I didn't make much of those suspicions because suspecting someone of being an informant, sadly, was a very common thing as well. Right, Where like someone would bring up a conversation about, you know, like what's happening in the Arab world, all the injustices that are happening to the Muslims, whether it's in Kashmir or in China or India or um, Palestine. And it would rile up a lot of emotions, as as, as I'm sure you know. Someone was willing to have too many political conversations and was too willing to express their political views, uh, radical political views in particular, they'd be viewed as suspect.
1: I mean, I I certainly experienced that. People coming to my mosque uh, that I grew up in and people showing up at Sunday school class who were much older and asking leading questions about terrorism when Sunday yeah. school is not really about politics. It's really about learning the religion. Yeah. So very notable. I mean, of course, we never confirmed. We never had confirmation right. that these people were informants, but people would show up and then they would, they, would, they would kind of vanish.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more about Shamir? Or? So he was my age, 18, 19 years old, and he actually came from a troubled background. So, again, his family was also working class. I think he grew up in Jackson Heights, Queens, which is like the Mecca of uh, South Asian diaspora in the U.S., right? At school, he got into a lot of fights. He got kicked out, from what I know, started using drugs. And he was actually caught on drug possession charges by the police. I think it was like marijuana or something. And they essentially told him, you can either face 15 years in prison or you can spy for us, spy on a narcotics gang for us. And he initially, he refused the narcotics and he, they had him spy on Muslims instead. But they actually put him in a very difficult situation, in a very difficult circumstance. He had a number of mental health illnesses as well. After the confession, he got in touch with me only once. I had blocked him for every, everything and he's still blocked. But he did try to text me once. He said he was in Puerto Rico and that he needed money to help come back. I reached out to some, some mentors of mine in the organizing world and they said that the police probably actually sent him there uh, to, to ward off attention from him so that he doesn't speak to media, uh, just ignore it. And I ignored it, but I know journalists who, like, who have done reports on this story and have tried to get in touch with him. And one who even went to his home in like 2016 or 2017. And, you know, she told me that, um, the guy was very, very, very like visibly mentally ill, you know, fidgeting and, and, and saying all sorts of weird things. But, that was, you know, five or six years ago. I think the latest update is that he's married and he's reinvented himself and he started a new life.
1: Well, that pattern that you're describing also came to light in the Tanvir versus Tanzan case, which went to the Supreme Court last year, where we had several Muslim men who were in a, essentially a very similar situation. The government was essentially, or government agents, FBI agents were using... immigration status or their sick family members at home and using the leverage that they had over them to say, you know, you can either go visit your family or you can spy for us. And these men all said no, but they went through like a severe mental health stressors as a result of saying no. So it doesn't surprise me to hear that people are being preyed upon to become informants as well. That seems like
2: a part of the behavior pattern as well. My name is Muhammad Tanweer and I live in uh, Archdale, North Carolina. When Tenzin come to my my store, they said, we need to take you to the Manhattan. We are giving you an offer you know, to work with us as the informer. I said, I want to go with you guys. They said, we'll arrest you. I said, OK, my lawyer will talk to you. They put me on no-fly list. I try to travel from uh, Atlanta to New York, and that time when I go to Atlanta airport, they said, you cannot fly. I call Tenzin, he said, oh, last time you don't want to talk to us, that's why it happened. And I take bus from Atlanta to New York, it takes me two days. I was very scared, you know, I cannot travel, I was on no-fly list for four years. It feel like you don't have like soil in your body, you didn't do anything and it happened with you for nothing. Inshallah, God will help us. We are on the right path, that's why I trust in God. I'm very hopeful for our community, for all the Muslim and for everyone who lives in America.
0: After the lawsuit, just to add to what you were saying, is that after the lawsuit, some of my, friend, my undocumented friends were asked to do the same thing. So after we filed the lawsuit, a friend of mine from the neighborhood who was undocumented was abducted by federal agents at his home. You know, they took him into some detention center, probably somewhere in, in, in Brooklyn. And federal agents went up, went up to him and said, hey, look, your friend Asset is suing the NYPD. Spy on him for us and we'll get you your legal papers. If you refuse, we might have to go with uh, deportation proceedings. And he refused, believe it or not. After he came out of prison, I, I bumped into him after the Friday prayer one day. And he told me everything that I just told you right now. And he made a request of me. And he said, man, it's nothing personal, nothing against you, but I feel like they came after me because of my association with you and the lawsuit. And I'm worried for the safety of my family, and I don't want them to come back again. So is it okay if we just part ways uh, for my own safety? And of course I obliged. I already felt so much guilt. And so I said, of course, I'll happily part ways for both of our safety. And I never saw him again after that day. It's a
1: chilling effect that you mentioned. I mean, it's... it's, it's Prevalent in Muslim <laughs> communities across the country, and even more so when something is revealed like this. You can be completely innocent, but the fact that the government is watching you can 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 have an effect on on you. And what's so fascinating and strange about it is how ineffectual it is. They're trying to find terrorists, and they target a bunch of teenagers doing charity. Yeah, you know, it's, like it's ridiculous. It's, yeah, uh,
0: this was in April of two thousand and sixteen. Like we were, you know, testifying in front of the judge, just to give you some background. So, this case is called Raza versus City of New York. Imam Hassan Raza was a co plaintiff um, and was a teacher of mine growing up. Because of NYPD spying,
2: I'm not able to fulfill my duty as an Imam. I'm constantly falling short of my
0: obligations to my congregation by not discussing important topics. Our mosque should be an open religious and spiritual sanctuary. The old guard of the Muslim community was there, right? Elderly members testifying like, to decades of surveillance, uh, black community members in particular who had dealt with anti-black racism and police violence were there. The judge heard us, and after that court date, you know, where the settlement terms were agreed upon by both sides, I got a call from Ramzi Qasim, who was at CUNY Clear, one of my attorneys, and he says he has good news. A couple weeks later, I'm like, what's the good news? He's like, the judge was actually not satisfied with the settlement demands that we made. In other words, he wants us, the plaintiffs, to make more demands of the police, that they were not enough to protect the community, which is very rare, right? The judge taking the side of, of the aggrieved party.
2: Surveillance of Muslim communities by the NYPD is officially coming to an end. CBS
0: 2's Janelle Burrell joins us live from lower Manhattan with the story and reaction. Janelle.
2: Andrea, the mayor this morning calling the end of the program the right move. From the beginning, it was an entirely undercover operation, closely watching Muslims and often causing tension between them and the NYPD.
1: I do want to talk about the demands because it's 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 a complex issue. And as I was digging into it and doing research, I saw there was a wide range of reactions. Some people said it was not enough. Did you imagine that there could be any kind of justice for this situation? Like, did you think to go to a lawyer?
0: What were your kind of demands? And then what were they presenting to you when, when you first met the folks at CUNYCLEAR? So when I met with CUNY Clear and I shared my story with them, I was initially hesitant. It was really at the second meeting where I where I develop the confidence to say, okay, I'm ready to sign on. Because at the second meeting, I met this incredible woman, uh, named Hina Shamsi, who is the national security director at the ACLU. Our lawsuit shows that since 2002, the NYPD has carried out a policy and practice based on a false and unconstitutional premise. That Muslim religious belief and practices are a basis for law enforcement scrutiny. This suit seeks to enforce two of the
2: Constitution's most fundamental guarantees, freedom from discrimination and freedom of religion.
0: She said the ACLU is going to be representing you as well. So in my mind, I'm like, holy crap, this is going to be a national story. This is not just going to be like a local Brooklyn neighborhood. This is going to, the whole country is going to be watching. And I was like, all right. Let's give this a shot. On June eighteenth, twenty thirteen, we finally filed and we saw it through. Can you talk a little bit about that moment where the the, the demands were adjusted? Give, give give me a little more detail. I don't remember the adjustments because it's very particular, but I remember the final some of the final demands that I, I can I can share them with you. One of the ones that really sticks out to me is that the NYPD can no longer initiate a surveillance investigation, where race, religion or ethnicity are substantial or motivating factors. Number two, any investigation that they do initiate that doesn't yield any more reason to further continue it after six months is terminated automatically. So the informant that was with with my group was with us for more than six months, right? So technically, it would have been terminated if these, these laws were in place. Number three was the elimination of the radicalization report that the NYPD had published and put it on a public government website. The radicalization report was was written in two thousand and seven, and the idea behind it was to identify what they, what became known as pre criminal traits. Which, if you ever hear the term pre criminal, red flag should be going off. What's a pre criminal? If you're innocent, you're you're innocent. It was a very, you know, very obviously discriminatory report, and so that got eliminated from all public websites online. Another demand that we got was the appointment of a CR, a civilian representative. This would be an accomplished attorney with no affiliation to law enforcement who would oversee NYPD surveillance to make sure that they're complying with all of the other demands. And we are to hold him accountable to ensure that he's holding the police accountable. So there's sort of like a chain of accountability here. And when I say we, I mean community stakeholders who are involved in pushing the lawsuit, including myself.
1: I feel like the conversation about policing has gotten sharper since the case was filed. We have conversations about abolition have come to the forefront. Conversations about the idea that you cannot reform something that is so broken as, as the NYPD. Surveillance as a whole needs to be abolished. You know, when I hear oversight over surveillance, I say, can that really still be just? You know what I mean? Is it enough? Is it the right tact? Where do you stand on these conversations? I know there have been critics of of the settlement. What have been some of your ways of thinking about it? And it sounds like you're still very proud of the accomplishments you made, but I wonder if you could respond to some of the abolitionist critics, some of the ideas that incremental reform
0: isn't enough. I would say that the policy changes that we brought about as a result of this, it's not going to happen overnight. Abolition is a process, right? And it's a process of coming to rethink what it means to keep each other safe right and safety right a key tenet of abolition abolitionism is that we we make each other safer we keep each other safe right and so with reduced surveillance means reduced funding for surveillance right and that funding can go elsewhere but i think we moved the needle in a direction that put us in a better position to make more demands right i think being part of the lawsuit is better than not being part of it and not not you know, moving the needle in any direction, right? And so I think it would be in alignment with the principles of police abolitionism. Reaching that horizon, right? Reaching that that new possibility is a matter of experimentation. And I, I feel like the lawsuit was just one step, but you have to look at it as part of a larger sort of collective effort of reducing and ultimately completely ending the idea of policing and that was essentially my battle with the NYPD and that battle took place in the classrooms in the courts in the streets uh, and the op-ed pages of the media you know everywhere where we could mount a fight we you know we fought and I'm really happy with the results we made history in New York and if you make history in New York you can make history anywhere so that can be seen as kind of a victory (laughs) so yeah
1: Uh, thank you so much for joining us
0: thank you for having me Ahmed
1: M Train is a six-part audio series hosted by me, Amadal yakbar and produced by Shereen Barri. It is edited by Kareem Duadi. Our executive producers are Kai Youngblood and Charlie Hoxie. Follow Brick on Twitter and Instagram at Brick TV, and follow me at Rad Brown Dads. This episode featured music composed by Kareem Duadi. It's also made with the support of the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Arts Building Bridges Program. For more information on this and all Brick TV content, visit BrickArtsMedia.org/BrickTV. I'm Amadal yakbar